Well, we return now after the season of Advent, after the holidays. We return to finish up the seven letters of Revelation. We had done five. We are on the sixth this morning. We're looking at the letter to Philadelphia. So we're in chapter three. Some of you know that a long time ago, I spent a little time at Corpus Christi College, Oxford, as an undergraduate. That place is full of old buildings, old. Um, Corpus Christi is mostly 14th century. My dormitory was 14th century. Because I was foreign, I had arrived early and tried to get a little orientation. But one thing that nobody showed me how to work with was doors. Old buildings have different doors than that. Uh, so in my big old dorm building, there was an iron gate 12 feet high, about the same breadth. Uh, massive iron door. Nobody could move that thing. It was unimaginable to me that that thing could ever be, even be open. But in that big iron gate, there was a little door. It was about 18 inches wide. It was five feet, five feet tall. So when I got there, I'd been given a key, and I, I, found, I looked, where's the lock? And the only lock I could see was in that little door. And sure enough, my key opened that door. I pushed it, and there's lots of resistance. It was pushing back on me. There's some kind of spring-loaded thing, and it was iron. But I, I pushed my way through five feet and then that is my bag giant bag I'm holding this door open with my body and I reach out and I had to step through it actually had a little it, it, it had some elevation at the base so I had to step through and then lift this giant bag as my suitcase for the whole time pull that through and I did that went through that little door for two weeks and then one day, a guy named Martin, who turned out to be one of my best friends in life, uh, walked with me from a meal. And we were coming up to the massive gate, and Martin skittered ahead. And he pulled out his key, and he went over to the side of the great iron gate to a lock I had never noticed. Put his key in this lock. He looked back at me, and he gave it a shove, and this huge 12-foot gate swung effortlessly open, these well-oiled hinges. He didn't, he didn't have to, he just little push. And I walked through nonchalantly like I would, yeah, I, know, I knew that. We started to go up the stairs, and Martin's behind me, and I hear him chuckling. I've seen you go through that little door. <laughs> he mocked me for years. Uh, well, as I found, and you know, uh, doors are different. Not all doors are equal. Some are harder to walk through than others. Some doors are guarded. There, there are guards that stand outside very important doors. Some are locked. Pretty much throughout time, there's a truth that holds about doors and doorways. That if you can walk boldly, confidently through a door you know that you have the right to do so. 
You know that you have permission to walk through the door. Otherwise, if you have doubts about whether you're allowed to pass some way, or if you fear someone's going to withstand your passing, they might step through and say, no, no, no. Or they're on the other side. Maybe there's danger on the other side. Then the door brings hesitance. The door itself brings fear, trepidation, maybe distress, even the thought of approaching a doorway that you know that you're not fully allowed to pass. It brings hesitance. Well, the right to enter and, and this question of belonging, that fills this letter of the Lord Jesus Christ to the church at Philadelphia. This church struggled against a claim that they were not approved by God. They were not allowed in his kingdom. They were not fully welcome in his kingdom. Not really part of it. That they were not beloved. And Jesus writes them a letter and says otherwise. And what Jesus said to them, he says to us. What Jesus said to them, he says to us today. So I hope you're looking. Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, chapter 3. Among the, the seven churches that letters are sent to, Philadelphia was the youngest. It was the most recently founded city. Philadelphia means brotherly love. Like our city in Pennsylvania, city of brotherly love. Well, this city was founded by a Lydian, a Lydian king. Lydia was a Greek. It had been settled by Greeks a thousand years before. It was a Greek kingdom. And King Eumenes founded this city of Philadelphia in honor of his brother, Attalus, who had been a great supporter of his. Again, they were Greek, and so this fairly recently founded, is in the second century BC, fairly recently founded city was thoroughly Greek. Not like these other cities that we've, are, are received recipients of letters. They, those were more ethnically mixed. This one was Greek. And the, Phila uh, the city of Philadelphia celebrated its Greekness, its Hellenism, by founding and building lots of temples to the Greek gods. Of a, uh, any comparable city its size, it had way more temples. And so even when this city came under the authority of Rome, so there's a Roman Empire, city in the empire, it was, it was still really Greek. And it was sometimes called Little Athens because it was, there were so many temples. I think that explains a little bit about what we can discern here of the Jews in Philadelphia. They're mentioned in this letter. Jews stood out everywhere. No matter what town they were in, uh, in, the, in the Greek world, they stood out. But in cities where there was more of an ethnic mix, they didn't stand out quite as much as they did in Philadelphia. What I'm saying is with that thoroughly Greek culture, ethnically unmixed, being a Jew meant you stood out 
quite, quite a bit. And so these Jews were very conscious of their difference. What we can see in chapter 3 here of Revelation, looking at verses 7 through 13, is that the Jews of Philadelphia were hostile against the followers of Jesus the Christ. They were actively hostile. Now, I've said this with a few earlier letters, because the, that same issue comes up, is that the Jews had a special exemption within the Roman Empire. They, they were exempted from certain taxes. They were exempted from burning the incense of honor to the emperor. They were exempted from uh, the requirements of local civic life to make offering to a pagan god. They could still have a voice in public life without making this, those sacrifices. They could still sell their wares without making those sacrifices. So the followers of Jesus in Philadelphia, as elsewhere, whether they were converted from Judaism, like they'd grown up Jewish and had come to see Jesus as the Christ, or whether they had been Greek, those followers of Jesus were claiming that they worshiped the same God as the Jews. And of course, they wanted those same exemptions. They didn't want to have to sacrifice to the emperor. They didn't want to have to be required to go to the pagan temple in order to participate in public life. They weren't going to, but they didn't even want to have to fight the requirement. So they were saying that these followers of Jesus, they were worshipers of the, of the same God as the Jews, and they were worshiping the long-awaited Christ that the Jews had waited for. They claimed that God, that same God had come to earth to offer reconciliation, come to offer forgiveness to all the nations, not just the Jews. But the Jews were saying, this is not the same religion. This is a corrupt sect. They're wicked. They are underminers of the, the whole Roman system, and they will undermine your local civil society. These Christians are bad news. Not like us. We, will, we cooperate. We go along with Roman authority. These people are going to be trouble. Well, from the message of Jesus, we can see that the, the Jews in Philadelphia were telling the Christians, and they were publicly proclaiming that only they were the people of God, not the Christians. Only they were the beloved, not these followers of Jesus. And not only, not only were they making life hard for the Christians in Philadelphia, they, they, were, they were casting suspicion on them. This happened all over the Roman world. But they were vigorously trying to delegitimize the church. Delegitimize it. And what it seems like, we're reading between the lines, is that if a Christian had come from a Greek background, they wanted that person to go back. Go back to the pagan temple. And if the person had come from a Jewish background, they wanted that person to come back to the synagogue. This thing, this experiment, this following of Jesus the Christ, the Christ, that needed to go away. Let's just go back to how it was. 
And that message of disqualification and condemnation, that becomes clear when we hear what Jesus says to the church. I think the primary essential message is verse 8. If, if, if there's a key point that he's getting across, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I have. Jesus has given them an open, unshuttable door. And it stands fixedly open because Jesus has done it. You didn't open for yourself a door. The door's open because I've opened it. It can't be shut because I've opened it. Look how he identifies himself in verse 7. The words of the holy and the true. Most Bibles will supply one because it's understood, but it's literally the words of the holy, the words of the true. Jesus is the holy one. That probably echoes from the Old Testament, echoes in your mind. That's the way, one of the primary ways that the sovereign creator God is talked about in the Old Testament. Jesus here, he's being clear. He is the same God who made the world. He's the same God who called Abram, the Chaldean, out of Ur. He's the same God who rescued Israel from Egypt. He's the same God who called them to Mount Sinai and made a covenant with them. He's the same God who created and chose Israel and led Israel. Jesus is saying that when I speak, Yahweh speaks. The sovereign creator God speaks when Jesus speaks. And so Jesus here is affirming right from Right from the outset, as he's addressing who is speaking, he's saying, Christians in Philadelphia, you're right. You're right with what you're saying. I am the same God. I am the same. Yes, you're worshiping the same God that the Jews have always worshiped. So whatever the Jews of Philadelphia were saying, God himself says, you are legitimate. You are. Jesus acknowledges their weak situation. They are. They are weak. He says, I know you have but little power. I know you're weak. There is nothing they can do, practically speaking. In Philadelphia, there's nothing forcefully, nothing politically that they can do to change these circumstances. There is nothing they can do. I know. I know you have little power. They're not going to be able to convince the Jews of their legitimacy. And in that situation, he commends them. He says, though you have but little power, yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. The name Jesus specifically. You have not denied the name Jesus. You know, as soon as they do that, as soon as they deny the name Jesus, everything gets easier. 
what the Jews are saying. Just, just you keep, keep God Almighty. Just set Jesus aside. Everything gets easier. And that is often the case. All we need to do, generally when we're facing some kind of opposition, all you need to do is deny something about God. Something you know is true. Things will get easier for you. That thing, that, that rub, that conflict, you deny it. But these Philadelphians haven't done it. They haven't. Instead, verse 10, they have held fast or kept close or guarded his word about patient endurance. You've treasured up what I've said. You've kept my word. In other words, the Christians of Philadelphia have continued to believe all that Jesus said. Whatever they've heard, whatever they've received in the gospel, whether it was orally given or whether now they have the written gospel, they've treasured it, they've kept it, they've believed it. They've believed that he loves them. They've believed that he's forgiven them. And they are holding fast to the promise that he is coming and he's going to redeem everything. So what Jesus says is, I know your works. I know all about it. I know all about it. And I have set before you a door, an open door that's no, that no one can shut. No matter what anyone else says, the God of the universe, the Redeemer of souls, has given you an open door. It's not hard to understand that symbol, right? We've talked about this. An open door from God means favor. Favor. It means yes. You, Philadelphian church, have open access to God. You can go in anytime you want. You can come right into his presence. You can come into his peace. You, whatever anyone else says, you have the right. I've given you the right to come into the presence. You've been given the grace of entry. Boldly, confidently, head high, shoulders back, you can always walk right in. And he says, there you are! I've been waiting. There you are. It's like that Charles Wesley hymn. And can it be, bold I approach to the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ, my own. But how can they be sure that they'll be included on the inside, this kingdom question? Because the Jews, the voice of their accusers, keep, keeps echoing, you're not legitimate. Even if you could get inside, Let's say you have a door. Even if you could get inside, you don't belong there. Well, Jesus undermines the authority of that voice, that accusing voice. In verse 8, not only is he the holy and the true, he holds the key of David. That is the key of the kingdom the Jews were looking for. David the king. Jesus says, I hold the key of the kingdom. And when he opens, no one will shut. 
When he shuts, no one can open. He's got the key. So the keys are in the hands of Jesus, the Christ, the promised king. And those who are in Christ, those who have come under his authority and have become part of him by his Holy Spirit, this is the Christ who gives his Holy Spirit and bonds people to himself. He makes us one with him by giving the Spirit. If you have the Spirit, you are in him. That means you have the key. He holds the key. You hold the key. Those in Christ have his grace. His grace opened the door. His grace keeps the door. His grace has given power for a person in prison to stand up. Prison door open. His grace gives power for the prisoner now pardoned to walk out of the door into freedom. And his grace gives power to stand in his glory and enjoy the freedom, enjoy his glory. So because Jesus has opened all this to the Christians, what will the accusers find? Jesus addresses this too. And we often... When someone's accusing us, we do wonder about this. Are they going to know? What about them? So I feel the freedom, but are they going to see? Jesus says, I have a gift for your accusers. This is surprising to me. It's one of the surprises of doing, working through this text. They will see the truth. He, he's going to cause them, their accusers, he's going to cause them to see the truth. The text literally says, I will give them. I will give them to come and honor you. It's a gift. For them to come and honor you is a gift. And they will learn that I have loved you. So the accusers, who have sided with Satan the liar and the accuser of the brethren will come to know the truth. Revelation 12.10 calls Satan the accuser of the brethren. So by accusing the brethren of Christ, that Jewish synagogue in Philadelphia, had, they had sided with Satan and had become Satan's synagogue. That's why he calls them the syn a synagogue of Satan. They've sided with the liar, with the accuser. But Jesus has the word of authority, and he has the word of power. Jesus has the last word. And he says no to the accusations because those who love Jesus and hold to his words are beloved. They are beloved. And he is going to give the gift of that knowledge to the world. So now, after... After countering the, the lies, stating the unchangeable truth, Jesus gives words of hope. He gives words to sustain this Philadelphian church. I will keep you from the hour of trial that's soon to come upon the world. I'm coming soon. Just hold fast to what you have. 
I'm coming. And when the day of revelation comes, I will make each of you a pillar in the temple of God, the temple of my God. These, these, are, these are gift words. Just think about Philadelphia with dozens of temples around Philadelphia. This, there's a constant symbol of a pillar. And so just if you are a, a recipient of this letter and you're walking around your town, every time you see a pillar, you've got this, you've been given a way of thinking about it. It's a reminder. I have that kind of standing. I have that kind of standing in the kingdom of Christ. I have that kind of place in the family of God. I'm part of God's house. I'm an essential part of God's house. That's what Jesus said to them. I'll make you a pillar. You're an essential part of God's house. Every single day, they're being told that visibly. I'm like that. I'm like that. I'm like that. I'm like that. I'm important. I really matter. And Jesus says, I will write on him. As a pillar, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. As I'm sure you know, names convey identity. When you name your kids, you're trying to, you're conveying something about them. Often it's family names. You're wanting to communicate you're part of this line. Perhaps you're wanting to set something about the future for them. Names convey identity. And to, and to write one's name on something, especially in the ancient world, was to claim an identification, possession. So if there is an inscription on something, it, it's to be identified with the inscriber. So each of these Christians who takes Christ's words to heart, who receives what he's saying, will have a firm defense against every accusation. It's not going to work. Words that delegitimize, words that disqualify. No, God is going to write his name on you. The name of the kingdom. He's going to write words that mean legitimate, Qualified, justified, belong, secure. All those. We need this message. They needed it. It's recorded in the scriptures because God's people always need it. Not a, we need it perhaps not exactly in the way the Philadelphians needed it. But we also need to hear this clear affirmation from King Jesus, the King of all kings. You need to hear that the one who made the heavens and the earth, who made everything that's in these realms, the one who rules the realm of angels and demons, who rules the invisible and the visible, this one who's going to come to judge soon, He's going to come to judge all things. And he's going to cleanse all of his creation. He's going to cleanse it. He's going to set everything right. 
You need to hear him say, I love you. I love you. And I give you full permission to come and go, to come and go. Come into my presence. Go work in the world. Come into my presence. Whenever you like. We need to know that. Because we also hear the voice of accusation. And for us, the voice of accusation and disqualification is not coming from the pagans. It's not coming from the Jews. It comes from within us. It comes usually, this is distressing, usually echoing the words of another Christian. Someone who, like the Jews, has become a pawn of Satan. Maybe for just a moment, in their own distress, they said words of accusation. They spoke lie. And those words got in, those words echo. Because this accuser of the brethren, he delights to confuse God's people. He delights to undermine, and it is his great pleasure to see us accuse each other, to speak with his own voice against one another. And those words of disqualification bounce around in our minds. And words like that are barbed. They get in and they hook on, they catch and they snare in our thoughts. And so many other thoughts will get caught on them. And so words of shame and rejection, words that cast doubt on God's goodness or cast doubt on his love for us, for you, that cast doubt on his forgiveness, they become ongoing tools of the enemy. And it's very simple for him to come and speak them again. Just point to them in our own minds. But Jesus gave the healing. This is what I said to the kids. Know the truth. This is the healing of our souls. Know the truth. And the truth will make you free. The truth is that if you are in Christ, you always have the key. You're always welcome. The door is always open. That's the truth. You're not disqualified. Whatever shame has been cast on you, he has said, welcome. My experience of that little door is a metaphor. <laughs> it's, it's been a metaphor that's really stuck with me. That little door, how I, it's how I tried. I had been trying, and it's how many of us try to live with respect to Christ. Without trusting Christ's words, we, we push through the little door. We contort ourselves and we strive and we, to try to get in and try to squeeze through a door that pushes back. But the truth was always there. It, it just shoves wide open. Because I have the key. I have the key. It was always there. It's wide open. And the truth is always there being spoken. So what I said to the children, I say to you, bigger children, 
The truth is always there being spoken. If we want to feed our souls and want our souls to be healthy, we have to have the truth. We have to feed on it. It's what Jesus was saying to that crowd. You want manna. You want to feed your bodies. I am here. The truth is here. Eat my words. And you'll need to eat who I am. You will need to have truth in you. Behold, I set before you an open door that no one can shut. Let's pray. Lord, we want to receive the truth. Lord, if there is any obstacle in us to receiving what is true, to receiving your grace, your steadfast love towards us, if, whatever, if there is an obstacle, Lord, we've asked that you would remove it and enable each one of us to accept your grace, to accept the power that you give to live in the freedom that you offer. We ask in Jesus' name.